If you join me in Bible study today, we're in the book of Jeremiah, Yermiahu, chapter 9. We begin in halfway through verse 14, but you can't start in the middle of a sentence. So let's just review verse 13, which says, And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my Torah. They've forsaken my Torah, my law. We looked last week. What does God say you do when you forget his law? You have forgotten him. Have you ever stopped to think, what does God mean? The word God means the all-powerful one that's in charge. And when he gives us a commandment and we thumb our nose at it, what we're telling him is, you're not my God. I don't got to have to listen to you. It says, forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but. The but means here's what they did instead. They have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals which their fathers taught them. The word I want you to emphasize in your notes is the word and. It's not just that they followed the Baals, but they decided I will do what I want to do. I don't care what God told me. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to do what I want to do. After all, it's my body, right? It's my life. But does the scripture not say we're bought for a price? We're not our own. We belong to him. But I wanted to just talk for a few minutes about one particular commandment. My, my heart was just overwhelmed with this. And that is the Sabbath. I read many commentaries this week about why we don't have to follow the Sabbath anymore. And they fall into a few different categories. The first category is because the word Sabbath is not even mentioned in the New Testament. That we have to follow all the commandments that are mentioned in the New Testament, but the Sabbath is not even mentioned. How many times does the word Sabbath appear in the New Testament? About 60 times. So anyone who says, well, we don't have to follow it because it's not even mentioned, needs to read a little more. So they just have a lack of understanding. Okay? The second group, they tended to come at it like this. They said Jesus violated the Sabbath over and over and over. And therefore, he showed us that the Sabbath is no longer valid. Yeah, see, that's the problem is... He never violated the Sabbath once. What he did was he didn't follow the scribes and Pharisees' man-made rules. But did he ever violate the Sabbath? The answer is no. But how can we know what his custom was? Because Luke chapter 4 tells us what his custom was. You're right. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4.
Now, I can understand the logic of if Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath, why should I? But the problem is the premise is wrong. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Messiah has just defeated Satan. It is the day of atonement, which is the day they say that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They were tempted by Satan and fell. Messiah was tempted by Satan and he prevailed. Verse 16 says, so he, had, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Is every word in the scripture important? Yes. Then why do you think it tells us what his custom was? Ah, we're supposed to imitate him. Give me a verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Of course, I know you could all quote it to me, but that's no fun. Let's go look at it. It says, oops, you're not there yet. 1 Corinthians 11 comes right after. Well, you know. <laughs> imitate me. Who's the me? That's Paul. that's Paul. Just as I also imitate Messiah. Well, that's not helpful. What was Paul's custom? Oh, let's go to Acts chapter 17. Aha. Uh -huh. So would you believe the Bible tells us that too, what Paul's custom was? Acts chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1 for context. <laughs> well, we got to go there. We got to go there next. Because that's the next point. Okay. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul as his custom was. What was his custom? Went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So what was Messiah's custom? To keep Shabbat. What was Paul's custom? To keep Shabbat. What did he tell us? To imitate him as he also imitated Messiah. But keep a finger in Acts. Keep a finger in Acts and go up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 adds something in verse 6. Referring to Messiah in 1 John chapter 2 verse 6. It says, he who says he abides in him... Hint, hint, John chapter 15, abide in me. Mm -hmm. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, imitate me, Paul, because I imitate Messiah. We saw Luke and we saw Acts, how they both kept the Sabbath. And 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 says, we ought to walk as Messiah walked. So if he kept the Sabbath, we should keep the Sabbath. But the third group of commentaries said, 
There is no evidence at all in the scripture that the Gentile Christians kept the Sabbath. Let's go to Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 42. Acts chapter 13, verse 42. You betcha. Am I getting too soapboxy yet? Good. I'm not done yet, though. Acts chapter 13, verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next what? Sabbath. Sabbath. Now when the congregation, it's not congregation, it's the word synagogue, it's the word synagogue, the very same word is in verse 42. Why did they change it here just because Gentiles are going? Yeah. Now when the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, what's a proselyte? That's a Gentile who's worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So when the Gentiles came to hear Paul, when did they come? They came on the Sabbath. But what about Acts chapter 20? Well, let's go look at Acts chapter 20. What you're going to find is there is not a single reference in the New Testament of the Gentile Christians meeting on Sunday ever. It's simply not there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. Let's start in verse 6 for context. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. From unleavened bread till Shavuot or Pentecost, you do what you count. Seven Sabbaths. Verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, a hot Sunday morning. Oh no, it's not. The Greek says miaton sabaton. So it should be translated now on one of the Sabbaths. One of what Sabbaths? The seven between Passover and Shavuot. On the one of the Sabbaths, when the disciples came together to break bread. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. You know the difference between a cardinal number and an ordinal number. You know numbers. What's a cardinal number versus an ordinal number? Cardinals are red. <laughs> okay, never mind. I should have expected that. One, two, three, four, five, those are cardinal numbers. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, those are ordinal numbers. Ordinal means an order. So one is a cardinal number, first. One is an ordinal number, first is a... <laughs> one is a cardinal number, first is an ordinal number. Okay, let's get the red ones versus the blue ones. Okay. In Hebrew, one is Echad, first is Rishon. They're not even close. Well, the same is true in Greek. One in Greek is Protos or Proton. Why is a Proton in science called a Proton? Because it's the first subatomic element that was discovered. It was number one. 
and it had a weight of one. Okay? And in Greek, what's the word for? Burst? Nope. Proton is first because it was first. Mia is one. So Miaton Sabaton on one of the Sabbaths. Sabaton is plural on one of the Sabbaths. At any rate. Yeah, I think I should stop that because uh, it's getting kind of confusing. But the point is, it does not say on the first day of the week there at all. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is the only other place that they say, look, look, it's Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, on the first day of the week should read on one of the Sabbaths. It's still counting the Sabbaths between Passover and the Feast of Weeks. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Verse 2. The Baptist pastor at the First Baptist Church in Prattville was a church historian. And when he and I got into it over the Sabbath issue, he said, you're right, there's nothing in the New Testament about the meeting on Sunday. It's not there. But I believe that the disciples changed from Saturday to Sunday after the Bible was written. Believe you want to. Yeah, believe whatever you want to. But after all the Bible here was written, where were all the, the apostles? They were all dead. So they didn't do anything. They didn't change anything. Okay. Go back to that thing about Paul at midnight. Was that midnight after the Sabbath had ended? Or was that midnight Friday night? That was on Saturday as the Shabbat ends, they break bread together. And they just, he was continuing though to encourage them and all that. Yeah, he was going to leave the next day, so he just kept talking. But that doesn't mean worshiping on Sunday. No, it does not. Um, in Israel, if you notice, when the Shabbat ends, everybody pours out to Ben Yehuda Street and gets yeah. ice cream. and they, It's fellowship. They fellowship. That's exactly what Paul was doing. I'm going to leave tomorrow, so hey, let's talk for a while right. before you head home. Okay. Well, they wanted him to, though. That I wasn't there. That would be why he did it, was because they begged him to. Amen. Yeah. Pull up the end stable, we would be begging to talk to Yeah. Add one more scripture, and that is Hebrews chapter 4. Because it is extremely important to our understanding of the topic. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Cardinal, 1, 2, 3, 4. Ordinal, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th. Got it. Okay. <gasps> Hebrews 4, 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That word rest in Greek is sabbatismos. It means specifically and only a Sabbath rest. You cannot translate that as a Sunday rest. It doesn't doesn't exist and then let's look at eternity future when will the sabbath stop being celebrated it won't not ever 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 go to isaiah chapter 66 we will keep it in the kingdom we will keep it in the new heavens and the new earth we will keep it to eternity future and beyond while I'm turning. Um, you know, the, the part about the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath that helps 
make Revelation 20 make a whole lot more sense where it says Satan is bound for a thousand years. Yeah. Because that, because if you don't know about the Sabbath, that thousand years just seems like a random number. But then when you tie it to Hebrews 4.9, that Sabbath rest, that's that 7,000 year. Right. You're exactly right. I don't know if you can hear in the back or not. But he said that Sabbatismos in Hebrews 4.9 makes Revelation chapter 20 make more sense where it says Satan is bound away for the thousand years. The thousand years is the day of the Lord. The thousand years is the day of Sabbath rest. Satan's bound away. We don't have to fight with Satan for that thousand year period. That's where, you remember a couple weeks ago, you and the doctor and I were trying to help me get through that gap that I was said, you know, why are we having the um, sacrifices and things like that? I forgot to put that period in of time there. Oh. So once I got home and I rehashed everything, I was missing that timeline. Okay. Once I put the timeline in, I was fine. Good. Isaiah 66. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. That gives us a time period. New heavens and the new earth is at the end of the millennial kingdom and goes on without end. So shall your descendants, that's Israel, and your name remain. So there will be live people in, on this earth into eternity future. And shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So, by looking at prophecy, and the fact that we will keep the Sabbath into eternity future, should help us understand that God didn't do away with the Sabbath. When will it end? answer is never, ever. Why? What's so important about the Sabbath that God would call it in the book of Exodus the sign that we worship the true and living God? We look back and we say, He rested on this day, therefore He commanded us to rest on this day. And when we do, we say, We believe that what He said, He meant. That He is the Creator, He is God, we are not. And this is the sign that we worship him and him alone. I've been with a group of pagans for about four days. Uh, mostly preachers and uh, people who teach. Okay. But they will insist that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter what else in scripture you do. Period. 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 Sure. Violate everything. You know, and is Sabbath a salvation thing or not? Yes, it is. And there, see, there's so many commandments that God gives us, and they are the marks of obedience and faith. And it's not just pull that one scripture out, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, because they're going to live like it, they're going to act like it, and we can look at them and tell that they're saved. You can't just say because a person said the words... That's magic from now on. Yep. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm, I'm just so frustrated with Christians insisting that they don't have to believe what the Bible says because they don't want to believe it. Right. 
First John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 is in black and white, just as clear, I think, as it could possibly be. John 17, 3 said, to know God is to have eternal life. And verses 3 and 4 of 1 John 2 tell us, how do you know if you truly know him? Does it say, now by this we know that we know him if we walk down an aisle once? We said the word. It says, now by this we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Yes. To call upon the name of the Lord is to say, I believe in the Lord. And if I believe in the Lord, then I'm going to obey the Lord. Yes. That's not legalism. That is, that is not legalism. That is repentance. And the proof of love. Give me a verse that says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Give me a verse that says, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and the commandments are not burdensome. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Which is the verse that says, sin is lawlessness, breaking God's commandments. 1 John 3, 4. So we can pick out a verse, misinterpret it, make a doctrine out of it, but come judgment day, what's the Lord going to say? Matthew 7, 23. God is not deceived. No. Okay. I've been on my soapbox long enough. It's almost time to go home. So let's go back to (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 14. How many of them quoted Isaiah 56 that has said, if you're a Gentile and you want to come into my kingdom, you've got to keep the Sabbath? Absolutely none. None. Those were the three groupings that all the commentaries fell into. A, it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. We keep every commandment mentioned in the New Testament. We see it's actually, what, 58, 59 times it's mentioned. And if you add Sabbatismos, which they didn't, then that's 60 or so. And the other is that, well, Jesus didn't keep it, which shows that it didn't exist. And we show that that's not so. And the third group was, there's nowhere in the Bible that the Gentiles ever kept Shabbat. And we saw in Acts chapter 13 that that's not so. Those were the three categories that all those commentaries I found fell into. Uh, Yes, Doc? Before you go further, what were the... The, uh, the, the groups that were, I don't know if I in my notes, there were groups right after John wrote Revelation that were trying to negate and to turn early worshipers to Sunday worship. The Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were there. Yeah, let's go to Revelation chapters, chapter 2, and we'll see what the Lord thinks of the Nicolaitans. Their doctrine was called antinomianism. It's like the churches today, is it not? Yep. Revelation 2. Weren't they just one group because there are other groups too that were, I mean, they're just... Yeah, but they're the one that's mentioned by name. The, are they the doctrine of Jezebel? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, because again, a lot of these Christians are actually preaching the doctrines of Jezebel. Right. Right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. Yes, one from the group sent me an email, I think it was just this morning, or a text, one or the other, that talked about... Andy Stanley's putting on a conference of how other churches can get the LBTQ um, people, people 
worked into their ministries, put them in positions of ministry and, and let them lead, congregate, etc., etc. Okay, yeah. Anyway, Revelation 2, verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in verse 15, the, well, let's start in 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. I mean, that's all over the churches today, eating things sacrificed to idols. Paul said that's good. No, he didn't. Sexual immorality, who cares? God does. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So in verse 6, he hates the deeds. In verse 15, he hates the very doctrine, which was antinomianism, that since Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, he took away the law, and therefore, we don't have to follow it anymore. We can do whatever the heck we want. God will be just as happy with us. Mm -hmm. I'm not skating on that lake with you. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, my congregation in Alabama for a while was meeting in a Baptist church that Dr. Alpert had set up our meeting there. And we met until the pastor sat down with me and said, you don't think that keeping the law matters at all to God, do you? And I said, oh, yes, I do. And he said, well, you get out of my church. <laughs> and we did. But okay. Back to Jeremiah chapter 9. We're actually going to make it to verse 15. Therefore, uh-oh, what does therefore mean? Because they have turned away from God, decided they can do whatever they want to, and God will just have to like it, including the worshiping of pagan gods. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. What do you know when you see Lord of hosts? You know, it's an end times prophecy and judgment is coming. God's raising the switch. The God of Israel. Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. What do you know about wormwood? It is poison. Does poison improve the body's health? No. Wormwood kills. So when God says, they have forsaken my law, have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, therefore I'm going to kill them. What should that cause us to think? That walking away from God's commandments is a good thing or a bad thing? A dangerous thing. Behold, I'll feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. Go to Deuteronomy 29.18. Deuteronomy 29.18. Stuff you don't want to drink. Super bitter stuff. It is poison. It's poison. Tastes bad and it kills you. I don't know much more about that. Deuteronomy 29 verse 18. I guess we have to start in 14 if we don't want to start in the middle of a sentence, huh? Because it really just goes on and on. So let's start in verse 14. 
I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone. But with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Which means it's for believers of all ages. Not just in the days of Moses. For you know that we dwell in the, dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by. And you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. So what did God tell them before they ever crossed into the land of Israel would happen if they turn away from God and walk their own way after their own hearts, after the gods of the pagan nations. Death, I will kill you. He's always had a sign. He's always told us beforehand what was coming. He's always told us beforehand what was coming. He said that's what's coming. They turned away from him. They turned to the pagan gods. And in Jeremiah it says, now you're going to drink the wormwood. And they're surprised. Why do you suppose they're surprised? Do you think they have been studying like they should? I bet they have not. Let's go on to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4. Before I go to Proverbs 5, Daniel says go to Proverbs chapter 3 and read verses 5 to 8. 7 and 8. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Yes. So like this is like the, an, the, anti, the antidote. He says it's like the antidote to the wormwood. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes, which means don't follow after the dictates of your own heart. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, which means repent and walk in holiness. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So while disobedience leads to death, what does obedience lead to? Life. Good. Now to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4. I hadn't stopped at that particular verse because it didn't mention wormwood. But it was a good one. It's the antidote to the wormwood. So verse 5. So I'm sorry. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4. Talks about the lips of an immoral woman. It says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So in our society today, where sex is free and easy, does that mean it's okay to God? I heard preachers just this week saying, hey, we got to catch up with the times. If people think it's okay, we can't be telling them it's not. What does God say sexual immorality is like? Wormwood and a two-edged sword, which means death. 
Jeremiah 23, verse 15. It's interesting that he calls sexual immorality sharp as a two-edged sword. Which is also what he calls his word. Which is also what he calls his word. So if you disobey the word. If you disobey the word, you're getting struck by the two-edged sword. Yeah. Jeremiah 23, 15 says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets. Talking about the false prophets. Behold, I will feed them with wormwood. And make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. So in Jeremiah, what are the false prophets teaching them? To follow God closely? No, quite the opposite. So if I teach you to violate God's commandments, and that leads you to the lake of fire, what does that make me? False prophet, false teacher, and a murderer, right? So what is what does my future look like? Pretty smoky. Yeah. Let's go to Amos chapter 5, verse 7. Amos chapter 5, verse 7. God lays it out so clearly for us. It's a perfect dichotomy. What do you have on one hand? You have life. The other? Death. Death. Now, in Isaiah 66, on one hand you have his servants. The other you have his enemies. Which one's in the life hand? His servants. If we do not serve God, we do not obey him, what does that make us? Makes us his enemy. However we slice it, the Bible seems to me to be so very clear. So let's look at Amos chapter 5, verse 7. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So when you turn people away from righteousness to lawlessness, God says it's like you fed them wormwood. Like you fed them wormwood. This answers the question that I hear so often. People will say, Wayne, if the teacher teaches the people wrong, God won't hold the people responsible for their sin, right? Yeah, he most certainly will. Sin is sin. If only we had a Bible we could study. Go to Amos chapter 6, verse 12. Here I'm going to need help from you farmer types. Do horses run on rocks? Yes, that is no. That's right. Does one plow there with oxen? Do you plow rock with oxen? No. What do you do? You plow ground. Amos chapter 6, verse 12. Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar. What does Lodabar mean? Literally it means nothing. That's what he calls the idols. Mm. 
remember Romans 6.16. Let's go up there and look at that for a minute. It should literally have been translated as nothing. Yeah, they just didn't translate it. They ignored translate it. Because there is a place mentioned in, I think it's first, second Samuel called Blow the Bar. Yeah, I'm sure. Romans 6.16. Some verses just catch in my mind like earworms. You guys have those at night you try and sleep and songs go round and round. Some verses do that to me. And this is one. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey? You are that one's servants whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. If you follow a path of lawlessness, which is sin, where does it take you? It says leading to death. Paul's talking to Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. He's not talking to unsaved people out in the marketplace. So what does Paul tell him? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is, no. Mejanoito, certainly not. God forbid. No way, Jose. However you want to phrase it. When it says, or of obedience leading to righteousness, the traditional church throws up on that. And it says, you can't get to righteousness by keeping God's commandments. But the fact is, you keep God's commandments out of faith and love. Salvation's by faith. If you have faith in God, you love God, and that leads you to obedience. And that ties right to 1 Corinthians. That ties, ties right to 1 Corinthians three. chapter 3. So it says, when you get saved, that's your foundation. Verse 11. Right, when you get saved, there's no other foundation than that which can be laid except that which was laid, which is our Messiah, Yeshua. Salvation by faith, but then you build on it. You build on it with your works. You build on it with your works. And if your works lead you off into lawlessness and sin, in Matthew 7, 23, Messiah says, I never knew you. Okay, I'm going to go now to the book of Revelation chapter 8. Verse 11. Revelation 8, verse 11. Revelation chapter 8, verse 11. God does not change. And in Revelation chapter 8, he's going to feed the people with wormwood. Right? Literally. Literally. Revelation chapter 8. Which verse? 11. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. What do you know about these people? Are they worshiping God? Or are they following after the false messiah? Since they've turned away from God, they've embraced another as God. He's literally going to feed them with wormwood. So what happens to the men who drink that water? 
says they died from the water because it was bitter. And the Russian word for one word is? Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Something I got to tell you about water being bitter. Normally, when we go to Israel, we don't get to go to Jericho. I haven't been there since in the 90s, but we're going on this trip, go by Jericho. And Jericho is the place where Elisha, who followed Elijah, turned the bitter water sweet. And that well is still the water source for Jericho these thousands of years later. The water is still sweet. God does not change. Gotcha. Matthew chapter 27, verse 34. Matthew chapter 27, verse 34. I've also never gotten to go to Hebron, and we're going to go to Hebron. I'm looking forward to that, boy. Matthew 27, 34. Now, will you be recording for us here? Will I be recording? No. Or we won't see you, you won't be in any classes? Right. Matthew 27, verse 34. When Messiah was hanging on the tree... The prophecy said he would be extremely thirsty, and he was. In verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. When he had tasted it, meaning when he found out what it was, he wouldn't drink it. For two reasons. One, the gall would have dulled the pain. But secondly, he told the disciples at the Last Supper he wasn't going to drink wine again until he drank it with us in the kingdom. And if you know anything about our Messiah Yeshua, when he says something, he means that he keeps his word. So let's go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 9, verse 16. Verse 16 says, I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Which means many of the people would go into captivity in Babylon and the rest are going to die. Those who absolutely refuse to obey God and go into Babylon are simply going to be killed by the sword. When it says, I'll scatter them also among the Gentiles, why didn't God tell us ahead of time that that would happen? He did. That's Deuteronomy 28 verses 36 and 37. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 and 37. Deuteronomy 28, verses 36 to 37. Then the Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you. Did they have a king when Moses wrote this? No. How long after this was it before they had a king? It was over 400 years. So how did God know they'd have a king? He knows the end from the beginning. Set you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. But all they did was break his commandments. That was enough. 
that was enough. You can ask questions, sure. Why is it that the food laws seems to be one of the things that stick in people's mind they can't get over it, that, that they, they can't get over it? They can't get past it. Because that would mean the Bible was true if they accepted that. They just don't accept that. Yeah, I think it's more that. It's an antinomian thing. It's an anti-Semitic thing. In the 4th century, when Constantine said you must eat pigs, it was a measure of anti-Semitism. If you've never read the letter from Constantine about when they made the changes, come up after the the teaching and I'll show it to you. He says, we hate the Jews, we'll do nothing like the Jews. And it's been a matter of anti-Semitism. That's true with the Sabbath, with the feasts and festivals, and with the food laws. They look too Jewish, and we hate Jews. Are we supposed to hate Jews? We're not supposed to hate Jews. We're supposed to be grafted into the olive tree. Yep. Okay. So back to Jeremiah. We're still in chapter 9. We're up to verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, there's an element of end times prophecy. Which means as we come into getting close to the day of the Lord, Israel's just now starting to come out of captivity and back into the land. But does that mean that all is well for Israel from this point forward? No, it does not. And that's why verse 17 is so important. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women, that they may come. I want you to turn first to Matthew chapter 9, and let let me explain what the wailing women are. It was a profession back in the Bible times. You hired yourself out to go mourn and cry when somebody lost a loved one. As they were sitting Shiva, Most of them can't cry for seven days, so they hire people to come and help them cry. Really. Matthew chapter 9, verse 23. Verse 23? Yep. Matthew chapter 9, verse 23. When Yeshua came into the ruler's house, what do you know about this ruler? Yep. That's the one about his daughter. And saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. That's not just family there. These are the hired women wailing. He said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. They went from warning to ridicule just like that. Because they're just being paid. They don't really have anything invested in it. When a crowd was put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Hmm. Let's look at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 38. Have That was one of the things that impressed me most about the late king of Jordan. 
when a group of Israeli schoolgirls were on a trip into Jordan, a Jordanian soldier opened fire on the bus and killed a bunch of them. And King Hussein went to every one of their homes and sat in the dirt to mourn with the families, each and every one. And I thought that showed a lot of chutzpah. Mark 5, 38. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. The reason he separates and those who wept and wailed loudly, these are the hired women. So let me read to you from a handout. Wailing women, Jeremiah 9, 17. Why are the wailing women mourners for hire spoken of in Jeremiah 9, 17? And did they have male equivalents? Well, you know, okay. The mourning or wailing women were a group of women that were professional mourners hired to lament for particular occasions. In the context of Jeremiah 9, 17, it is God that calls these women to come and mourn for Israel, considering the Babylonian captivity that overtake Jerusalem due to their failure to repent. And in the future, it's going to be the wars that come in the tribulation period. goes on to say, This custom of professional mourning was widespread throughout the ancient Near East. And virtually throughout all human history, women were the only professional mourners in almost every case. Hebrew history shows us that the practice of women mourners has always been accomplished by women, even within extra biblical material, such as the Mishnah, this work of professional mourning is, more than not, found in the feminine sense and accomplished by women in whom they would eventually train their daughters in the same line of work. Okay, that's enough. Why they care whether men did it too, I don't know, but they cared. But it wasn't just Israel. It was a custom throughout the Middle East and the Near East. Okay, back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 18. It says, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. Where's, what's Zion? That's prophetic Jerusalem. It literally is the place where God dwells. How we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land. Because we have been cast out of our dwellings. So they're, they're saying that captivity approaches swiftly. And it did, not just in the days of old, but go to Jeremiah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, I'm sorry, Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. The reason it tells us there's an end times side to this calling for the waning women is because of Zechariah 14 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. What does that mean, your spoil will be divided in your midst? You're going to get plundered, right? For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity. It really, for some reason, didn't strike me until the last week or two. That the United Nonsense, I mean the United Nations, was formed 
just very shortly before Israel became a nation again. And from its founding has been trying to force Israel to divide Jerusalem. I don't think it was an accident, no. So when I say in verse 2, for I gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem, I say that's the United Nations that is leading that charge. And we'll see. I'm not a prophet, but we'll see. So go back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 19 is the future. How we are greatly plundered, greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land. Because we've been cast out of our dwellings. And we think, boy, that'll never happen again. But Zechariah says it's going to happen in the tribulation period. That half of Jerusalem's going to get sent out in a, away from the city. But that will be the last time ever. Yep, they'll go to Petra. Verse 20. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. That's what we read. It was a generational thing that mothers taught their daughters. And everyone, her neighbor, a lamentation. For death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children no longer to be outside. I gotta stop. Oh man, that hurts. My first trip to Israel was in 1992. And we had two tour guides. And when we were in the Golan Heights, we went to the Syrian bunker that was closest to the edge of the Golan Heights. And you literally could throw rocks down on the Israeli valley below. And she said, I was part of the Israeli army that liberated the Golan Heights. And she said, you do not understand the significance when your president and Congress are trying to force us to give the Golan back to Syria. She said, see all that land down there in the valley? It's the Jezreel Valley, by the way. She said, there were whole generations of children that never ever got to go outside because if they went outside for any reason the Syrian snipers would shoot them dead and America thinks we should give this Golan back to the Syrians so they can do it again no won't happen okay to go off so no longer to be outside and the young men no longer on the streets so that's not just poetic language. That literally is in our modern history. But verse 22, speak. The word speak is a command. And it's a pial command. If you know the difference between pa'al verbs and pial verbs, it means strong emotion. It means kick the podium, pound the podium. Speak, thus says the Lord. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. What does that mean? It means the dead will be so many, and there's no one left to bury them. There's too many to bury, there's no live bodies left to bury. 
in biblical terms, if a body is not buried, if it's left out to rot, it defiles the land. Mm -hmm. And it's a great dishonor to the person. When there's no one left to bury you, and you're going to lay out in the field. Yeah. Verse 23, thus says the Lord. Isaac telling us every verse or two, thus says the Lord, because they want us to know that Jeremiah is not just making this stuff up. So verses 23 and 24 read, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, which means what? Will their wisdom save them? No. Will their might in battle save them? No. Will their wealth save them? No. Uh-oh. But let him who glories in this, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Knows me. Does that make you think of John chapter 17 verse 3 and 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 and 4? It should. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Meaning that if you understand and know the Lord... Where will you be when this final battle takes place? You will have gone to Babylon where God told you to go. If you stayed behind in Jerusalem saying that I don't care that God told me to go. I'm not going and he can't make me. What's going to happen? You're dead meat. That's exactly what it's trying to say. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And you know, and you will see as we continue to study Jeremiah, as much as Jeremiah called on the people to repent, there were hundreds of false prophets telling the people to just ignore him, he's wrong. Sounds a lot like our present day. In Matthew chapter 7, the Lord describes two roads that all those who think they're saved are walking. Where does the broad road go? Destruction. To destruction. The narrow road. What does Messiah say? And few there be who find it. Okay, I digress. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. They're taking that from Jeremiah chapter 9. Which tells you what? It hasn't changed. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Does the Lord command the loving, faithful, obedient one? Or the arrogant, stiff-necked, disobedient one? You guys looking at me like that's a silly question. Okay. Yes, sir. And with Paul being a rabbi. And with Paul being a rabbi. He's throwing out this verse from Jeremiah. He's throwing a verse from the Jeremiah. The students then what? They're supposed to go back and put it into the proper context. Supposed to go back and put it in the proper context. And what's the context? If you break God's law. If you break God's law. And you're disobedient. 
and you're disobedient, prepare to die. Prepare to die. As I often say as we're looking at Isaiah 66, when God returns and slaughters those that are eating pigs and worshiping idols, is it so they can get to heaven faster? The answer is no, it is not. Yeah. Yeah, they'll be consumed together does not mean a good thing. Correct. So let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Bet you guys think you know where I'm going. But I'm not. Not going to verse 34. Fooled you, but... But I have no impulse control and I have to read it anyway. But Psalm 89 verse 14. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Who's the your? That's the Lord. Mercy and truth go before your face. Righteousness and justice means what gets meted out to the unrepentant sinner? What he deserves, deserves, which is judgment. So we get so focused on God is love, and he is to his children, but to his adversaries, to his enemies, is he a loving father? No. And it goes back to the essence of a yeah, a share a yeah. I will be whom I will be. I mean, it depends who you are, your relationship to God. If you are his loving child, he is a loving father. And if you want to spit in his eye, well, expect the consequences. And go to Isaiah 16. The verse in John 8. Where Yeshua says, before Abraham was, I am. They're trying to trace it back to Exodus 3, and yeah, they're just so wrong. But if, if that's what they're trying to do, if they're saying that he's the Lord, and if they're saying, oh, Jesus is love, Yeshua is love, 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 what does I will be who I will be mean? Like, do they step back and take the 10,000 foot view and look at what it means? Uh, too often the answer to that is no. They certainly should, though. They should step back and look at what does I will be whom I will be mean. Yep. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5. Isaiah 16 is the chapter that assures us that Israel in the tribulation period will flee to Petra. It begins, verse 1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. Selah is just the Hebrew for Petra. Petra is Greek. So that's the place in Jordan where, well, we'll be going next month if we're still here. But in verse 5, which is the verse we came to look at, it says, in mercy, the throne will be established. But we know from many scriptures, including Exodus chapter 20, God shows mercy to whom? 
those who love me and keep my commandments. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one, that's Messiah, will sit on it in truth. Truth is Torah. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Is he going to teach us the Torah? Yeah, that's what Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 both say, and that's what Isaiah 16.5 here means. When Messiah sits on the throne, ruling over the Messianic kingdom, he is going to judge and seek justice. And what about those who refuse and say, no, I'll do what I want to do? Does Isaiah chapter 65 tell us that they will die in the, in the millennial kingdom? Yes, it does. Then Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. I'll betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. In loving kindness and mercy. To whom does God show mercy? Those who love me and keep my commandments. Is Exodus chapter 20 the only place that says that? No. Those, are, those are like the foundations of the prayers of Nehemiah and Daniel. Those are like the foundations of the prayers of Nehemiah and Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 9. You're absolutely right. They realize, Lord, we've sinned. You know, they realize, Lord, we've sinned. Pour your mercy out on us. Pour your mercy out on us. But to those who yeah, so they're in prayers of repentance. Yep, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4 says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. So yeah, it's a very, very universal concept. Let's go back to Jeremiah 9. Verse 25. Let me give you a chance to get back there. Daniel chapter 9. Verse Jeremiah, thank you. Chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, we'll read together. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. That says Jew or Gentile alike. Why is he punishing them all? Because they're all sinning. Circumcision says, we will keep your commandments. But if they're not, 
Then it's as if they're uncircumcised. Verse 26 says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the flesh. No. Are uncircumcised in the heart. And that's the point I want to make. They're circumcised in the flesh, which is a promise to be obedient. But they're not circumcised of the heart, meaning they are not obedient. So they promise to be, but they're not. So he's basically calling them a bunch of hypocrites. Hmm. Let's go to John chapter 7. Let's run this down. John chapter 7. Those two verses are very powerful. Those two verses are very powerful. Because they show that God is, he does not show partiality. Because it shows that God does not show partiality. Give me the verse where Paul said, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandment of God is what matters. Yep. I mean, so this just shows God requires everybody to keep his commandments. Yep. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, yes. shows that God expects everyone to keep his commandments. So that may even be in my list of cross-references here. We'll find out. But go to John chapter 7, verse 22. John chapter 7 is the fall. Getting close to the time for tabernacles. It says, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Did God command them to circumcise? No. John chapter 7 verse 22. Circumcision, physical circumcision in the flesh is a sign of a covenant. It's not a commandment. And yet, because it's a tradition of the elders... They will violate the commandment for the Sabbath in order to keep the custom of the fathers. That's what he's trying to tell them here. Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Most people don't understand Acts chapter 15 because they don't start with the question of what question are they trying to answer? They assume, well, it's do Gentiles, once they get saved, need to keep the commandments of God or not? That's not the question. The question is in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, the Jewish theology of the day is that salvation is by circumcision. If you do what our fathers taught us to do, that's how you get saved. And what did the Jerusalem council decide? No, look at verse 8 and 9. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. 
So the question is, how do we get saved? Is it by faith or by circumcision? The answer is, by faith. Back to the other point, though. The instruction was circumcised on the eighth day. Right. It doesn't matter what day it falls on. If it's the eighth day, the blood is at the peak point for clotting and so forth. So you simply obey the... The rabbis work on the Sabbath. Sure. I mean, they're, they're not judged as guilty because they work on the Sabbath. The priests worked on the Sabbath. Yeah, so yeah. I'm saying that the, it may not have been a commandment, etc., but the instruction was, and it was a medical instruction, that you do that on the eighth day, and it was best for the baby that you did that. And sure. God honored that. And God honored that. Right. Going on to Romans chapter 2. I'm not arguing that it's a bad thing. Yes. Just that. Just that. Romans chapter 2 verses 25 to 29. Paul is trying to explain it to a Gentile audience best way he can here. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29. And it's based on that which is in Jeremiah. In verse 25, it says what? For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. So the promise to keep the law is a profitable thing if you actually do it. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Meaning it's not the physical act of circumcision. It's are you obedient to God or not? Verse 26 says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Meaning maybe he didn't make the promise to do it, but he's doing it. So which is better, to promise God you'll do it and then don't, or don't make a promise but do it anyway? I seem to remember something like that in the Gospels too, huh? In a parable. But it goes on in verse, in verse 27, it says, And will not the physically uncircumcised, notice it says physically uncircumcised, not uncircumcised in the heart. Circumcision in the heart indicates an obedience out of faith and love. For he is, I'm um, sorry, verse 27, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, Judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. That's why there's not a commandment for physical circumcision, but there is for circumcision in the heart. That just eliminated almost every Jew from being a Jew. <laughs> yep. That's sad. Yeah, but the word Jew means one who worships the true and living God. And, yeah, so you either do or you don't. And even that eliminates the vast majority of the people that are called Jews. Yeah. Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Answer, much in every way. 
chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The scriptures. So the advantage is that they knew what God required of us. They had it all written down. But is that a real advantage if you don't keep it? Not so much. That's why it says in verse 3, what if some did not believe? See that word some? Sometimes we forget that there were a lot of Jewish people who did believe. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Answer, certainly not. So the fact that some Jews didn't keep God's commandments, does that make God's commandments irrelevant? No. Nope. Remember, this is the same chapter where Paul says in Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? Answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You know what commentators say about verses like that? They say, well, 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 you have to understand it doesn't mean all of the law. It means the New Testament law. No, it means we have to divide the law into three categories. Is it a moral commandment? Oh, that still applies. But is it civil or ceremonial? Oh, those don't apply anymore. Where's that in the scripture? Nowhere. Nowhere. It's just an excuse. Romans chapter 4 verse 11. Let's start, let's start in verse 9 and get a running start. Oops, I got a question out here. It's probably... He says he will give them a heart of flesh. Yep, true. Okay. Let's start in verse, what did I say, 9. Does this blessedness, that is, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Answer, of course, we know is both. It says, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That's from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Uncircumcised, yep. It says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision. He received what? doesn't say the commandment of circumcision. does. It says the sign of circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. So it's supposed to be a sign of the faith that causes you to be obedient. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, meaning physically, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, while our father Abraham had while still circumcised. You get the bottom line of what he's saying. It's not physical circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart. That's what God is looking for. Oh, there's a lot more here. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19? Yeah. If you're not familiar with this verse, and I'm sure that 
all of you in here are, but I'm not sure everybody that will listen online is. It's very important. It says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, which simply means it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So who does God expect to keep his commandments, the Jew or the Gentile? The answer is both. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. After telling us in chapter 5 that you who have attempted to be justified by keeping the works of the law, man, you missed the boat. He says in verse 6, For in Messiah Yeshua neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, meaning of the flesh, avails anything but faith working through love. Now, how does this relate to 1 Corinthians 7.19? Faith working through love produces what? Obedience. So that's how those two verses fit together like hand in a glove. And then in Galatians 6.15, I know people say Galatians says, once you're saved, you're forbidden from keeping the law, but that's not what it says at all. Galatians is the same as Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It's how are we saved. How many people have ever been saved by keeping the commandments? None. Salvation's by faith. That's the way it's always been. It's never changed. But if you come to faith, then what does God expect you to do? Keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Be obedient. Galatians 6.15 says, For in Messiah Yeshua neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It says, but a new creation. What does that new creation refer back to Ephesians chapter 2? Which says, before you got saved, you were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of the covenants of promise. But then when you got saved, you became a part of Israel. You got grafted in. And the covenants of promise apply to you too. As if that was not enough, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 16. Therefore, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. I want to pull that up in the Hebrew if you give me just a second here. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16. Deuteronomy 10. What's that hidden nugget while I'm looking this up? 
the Aleph Tav. And what does that Aleph Tav represent, Daniel? Messiah. Represents Messiah. Verse 16. All righty. I was trying to look up the word, is it really therefore? It's not really therefore. So let me just strike through it. It's the word and. There's more instructions. Yeah, that's all it is. It's just a reversing Bob in the Hebrew. So, and circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For, what does for mean? Because, and that's really there, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Oh, does that remind you of Revelation 19, a term for Messiah? The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. What's that mean, no partiality? Doesn't see a distinction between people, Jew or Gentile, man or white, black or woman, makes no difference. Judges fairly, nor takes a bribe. Go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Let me take this down now. Also means he does not have a separate or different set of commandments for one set of people than another. Talking Jew versus Gentile. Now, priest versus common man, that's different. Man versus woman, yeah, there's some differences there. But Jew versus Gentile, not a difference. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision of the heart is not just a New Testament concept. It's not something new. It's something from the beginning. Why would God want us to love him? How many of you prefer your children to hate you? No, nobody does. We want our children to love us. And God wants us to love him too. He wants children and not robots. That's true too. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. I assume we can find Jeremiah since we're studying Jeremiah. Perhaps. Yeah, no guarantees, right? Okay. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Let me look this one up in Hebrew. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. I think I know what I'm going to find. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Have you all found it? Yes. It says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. And that's a commandment. Not physical circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. Take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest. What's lest mean? Here's what's going to happen if you don't. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. 
So what's another term for circumcise your heart? Repent. Repent. Get saved. Walk in righteousness. Walk in holiness. Without holiness, comma. No one will see the Lord. Circumcision of the heart can also be thought of as inscribing the Torah of your heart, which is the heart of the new covenant, which is actually the renewed covenant. You guys know there's between neos and kainos, right? If you look at the new covenant throughout the new covenant, it's the word which? Kainos. Renewed, refreshed. Let's look at Romans 2.29, and I put in my notes again. Yeah, I know we just looked at it. But it's just too important. Romans 2.29 But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What does that mean? means God wants anyone who's going to worship him to circumcise the heart, to be obedient to God out of faith and love. Is that consistent with the rest of the New Testament? It is consistent. Oh, and now with so little time left, we get to Jeremiah chapter 10. What makes me think we won't finish Jeremiah 10 today? What's that? We were in 9, but we just finished 9. Right, but you said finish 10 today? Yeah, I don't think we'll finish 10 today. <laughs> we'll get started. Verse 1. It begins with a commandment. Jeremiah 10 verse 1 says, Hear, that's the commandment. Hear the word of the Lord. Right? Which the Lord speaks to you. So it's the word of the Lord which he speaks to you, O house of Israel. Do you see that? That's not what the Hebrew says. It's hear the word which the Lord speaks about you, not to you. That makes things a little different, doesn't it? Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. How is this consistent with the New Testament? Let's see. Do not learn away the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, right? Let's go look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17. It's almost like Paul's read the Old Testament. Like he studied at the feet of Gamaliel himself. Yeah. 
Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. If he testifies of it in the Lord, is it true or false? It's true that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. What's that little word that appears about 60 times in the New Testament? Oh yeah, repent. If you repent, then you can no longer walk in the sins that you did before you got saved. If you continue in sin... What have you not done? You've not repented. Romans 6.1 What then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. What is sin? 1 John 3.4 Sin is lawlessness. Breaking God's commandments. I say that's a little bit different than just go ahead and keep sinning because God likes it. Yep, me too. Let's make another change back in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2. It says, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. What does that word dismayed actually mean? It means don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear the pagan ways of the Gentiles. You should fear God. What can that pagan idol do to you if you're disobedient? Nothing. Nothing. What can God do if you're disobedient? Remember the gall and wormwood? Yeah. Scripture says, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body, but... Kill the body and cast the body and soul into hell. Yes. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 4. No, it was not a veil threat. You're right about that. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 4. How does God feel about his people continuing the pagan ways? He does not want them to do that. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 4 says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Ooh, that means, ooh, forever. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. It's actually the evergreen trees. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So the fact that they would cut down an evergreen tree, bring it in the house and put it on a base so it won't fall over and decorate it with silver and gold. Should we do that for God? He doesn't ask you to. No. Um, in Israel, they have actually found in archaeological digs some of these evergreen trees. And they really are decorated 
with silver and gold balls. The gold ones represent the sun and the silver ones represent the moon. That's why they were decorated with silver and gold balls. And we have run out of time. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 11 anyway. Then we'll quit. Ezekiel chapter 11. And next week we can argue whether we're talking here specifically about Christmas trees or not. I look forward to the arguments. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 12. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. What do you think God's about to unleash? Judgment. Yeah, the woodshed's coming. With that, we've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, if we're still here, in Jeremiah chapter 10. Continuing verses 2 to 4.